listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod. I'm Amanda Carpenter, and today in the Planet Pod studio we have an all-women lineup. So sorry, Jim, outnumbered again. And as it's all women, we're talking shopping. No, seriously, I know that sounds like a stereotype and a cliche, but we're going to be talking about green shopping, green consumerism, and the whole issue of how we shop, what we buy, how green our products are where the responsibility for sustainability within the whole shopping and purchasing um, arena lies, whether that's, you know, anything from boxes to luxury travel holidays. So I have two fabulous female guests with me today. I have Michelle Johnson, who's a journalist with a passion for storytelling in the environment, and Michelle, your digital editor at Tempest magazine. So hello and welcome. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be on the show. And Diana Carrion, founder of Thoughtful Works, a social enterprise which harnesses creative talent to make things that make a real difference. And that sounds quite worthy, but I'm absolutely sure it's not worthy and we're going to hear more about it. So hello and welcome, Diana. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I think given what's been going on at the moment with all the conversation about um, plastics in supermarkets and consumables, it would be really, really easy to be cynical about green consumerism. And I know that people I've spoken to have said, well, it's just big corporates jumping on the commercial bandwagon and exploiting a new trend for the benefit of making money. So what I'd like to do today is really explore that with my guests, because I know they've got very different perspectives and experience, but there's lots of areas where we can really delve down into some of the myths and perhaps the perceptions of green consumerism. So it's great that you're both here today, so thank you for coming. Um, I guess before we start, we should have our regular Uh, good, the bad and the ugly slot. And I've got, unusually for me, two goods this week because Steve can't be here and Steve usually does the good stuff. So I've stolen his mantle. And my two goods are, I'm delighted to say, both from previous Planet Pod guests. And the first is the news that Iceland, the supermarket, has adopted a plastic planet's trust mark. Now, and that's difficult to say, but what it means is if you go into Iceland on their packaging, you will see a little tag, a little badge that says this is plastic free. And we all know that the fabulous Sean Sutherland set up a plastic planet to campaign for plastic free supermarkets, plastic free aisles. And she's a great friend of the pod. So huge shout out to Sean and well done, Iceland. And my second good is other friend of the pod, Hubbub, um, who've just received a very generous donation from Morrison's, another supermarket chain. Um, You've got a theme going here, haven't we? Um, Who've given £45,000 to fund community fridges. And community fridges are a way of saving waste um, and making sure people who are on a tight budget and don't have access to fresh food very often can 
can benefit from having food in their community so it doesn't go to waste and they save money. And on average, a community fridge saves about, you know, 525 kilos of food going to waste per month. Um, and it's fantastic. So well done, Morrisons, and well done, Hubbub. So I've done my two, so I'm going to ask my guests. Do we have a good and a bad and ugly from you, Michelle? Oh, it's a difficult one. Um, I think, I'm not sure if it's a bad or an ugly. I would call it more of an annoyance, if I'm honest. But um, I've been thinking a lot about, and particularly while coming onto the show and thinking about the show, thinking about the anti-plastic movement that obviously... We're all very keen to talk about, we're all very keen about what people are doing and it's a fantastic cause. However, the question of straws always makes me think, what is the alternative? And obviously, we don't want to use plastic straws, single-use plastics, bad for the environment, bad for all of us. However, the paper ones that seems to be replacing them are useless. And I just think, you know... What are we going to do? Are we going to get bad teeth? We've got that cold ice on our teeth. The sugar's going to us, which causes other problems. But honestly, I do think that whoever comes up with a really sustainable, brilliant idea for a non-plastic straw that isn't one of those horrible metallic ones that you have to wash out and isn't the goopy paper ones that, you know, become completely unusable, they are going to be having the most fantastic time of things in the industry. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where that goes. But straws, they're my bad. <laughs> we could just drink out of cups, but, you know, there we go. But in like the cocktails and yeah, the, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, it's a lifestyle thing. So I think that's probably a challenge for you, Diana, because you work with creative people and they come up for solutions. So maybe straws is on the list. What, what would no. your good, bad or ugly no. be? No pressure then. <clears throat> uh, so... The eternal optimist. Um, I love to talk about the good stuff, so uh, I'm going to do that. I find that to be kind of where a lot of the inspiration and motivation is. So uh, the other day I came across a book called uh, No More Plastic that came out uh, one or two weeks ago uh, by a guy called Martin Dory, who describes himself as a writer, surfer, and camper banner. Um, he's founded a few campaigns, uh, Two Minute Beach Clean, Two Minute Litter Pick, Two Minute Street Clean. Um, and this book, No More Plastic, sort of comes under the banner of uh, Two Minute Solution, actually, hashtag Two Minute Solution, <laughs> um, which makes me think that maybe it's the first of many of a series of um, books about how people can sort of take small actions that make a big difference. And that's something I'm a big believer in. Um, as we've said, there's a lot of focus on plastic right now. And I don't think that we have to wait for kind of big, huge solutions from government and from business in order to act. There's a lot that we can do ourselves. Um, but we do need to make it simple enough for people that they can sort of fit it into their daily lives. And so um, I think this book is probably a, a great start in listing lots of small things that people can do to avoid plastics. So, you know, the obvious one of not buying plastic water bottles because that's just not necessary having, you know, a reusable one like the one that I've brought today. <laughs> um, or, you know, the, the like the takeaway utensils. You, usually when you're taking something away to eat in the office or to eat at home, you usually have utensils there. So can you leave the plastic ones behind? Um, the plastic containers that you get from the takeaway, can you sort of reuse those a few more times? So those little things 
um, that people can do because I think that all of us as sort of um, consumers and just as citizens need to demonstrate a willingness to change um, and to take action so that government and business can then follow our lead with better technology and policy solutions that can help to speed up that change for the better. Yeah, I would completely agree. And I think the secret of sustainability, um, along with all movements, because it is a kind of movement, I suppose, isn't it, is small actions count. Because mm. small actions multiplied across many people, many communities, create great change. And, um, you know, what better place to start than the small plastic straw? So <laughs> so I think those are both brilliant. Thank you for those. Thanks and for sorry, did you say that was No More Plastics by Martin Dory? Yes. That's definitely yes. going on the reading list. That yeah. sounds brilliant. We'll put that on the website and have a link. So visit the website, everyone, at theplanetpod.com. There I see. I've got my website plug in early. Um, <laughs> So that's really interesting because you were talking about, um, you know, a small thing that makes a big difference. And I know that, Michelle, one of the businesses that you work with at um, Tempus, because you're very much a luxury end of the market. Yes. So it's not the it's not perhaps the mass supermarket. It's much more the niche luxury end. But I knew you were telling me that one of your businesses has banned plastic from its hotel chain. Is that yes, right? Yes, it's really it's a, a fantastic initiative, actually. Um, the Edition Hotels. Um, they have ho they have very high end five star hotels in London, uh, Miami, um, and many other places around the world. I think it's Miami. There's definitely one in New York in the Clock Tower. Um, they've created an anti plastic initiative that is banning banning plastic straws, uh, banning plastic bottles from mini bars, and things that didn't even occur to me. Plastic wraps that you know keep the fresh towels that hotels keep fresh towels in. Um, to keep them hygienic. They've developed a new way of, you know, making that happen. And it's throughout the entirety of the chain, which I thought was incredibly interesting. And another thing that they're doing is trying to create a symposium or a consortium of other hotels and other large-scale brands who will make that same commitment. And part of that initiative is driving them to find suppliers who have alternatives to plastic as well, and so that it becomes cost-effective. So it's a really interesting um, initiative that the edition are doing. And you see it in a lot of chains, actually. Hotels in particular, often the Four Seasons in Koh Samui, um, quite recently launched uh, a partnership with the Marine Conservation in Thailand. And they're helping their guests learn about marine conservation efforts and, and even help taking guests on trips to replant coral reefs around the hotel and around the Thailand shores. So I think it's really, really interesting when these luxury, these huge luxury brands, Chopin, for instance, is um, looking into ethical gold and IWC Schaffhausen, um, two huge jewellery and watch brands are committed to becoming completely sustainable in their sourcing of materials. And that's really driven by consumers. But what they've really managed to do is create these huge brands that are taking on these challenges and pulling it all through and then making these consortiums that allow smaller brands that don't necessarily have that reach, have that luxury high end. I mean, obviously, you know, much as we'd probably all love to go, you know, coral diving, mm. um, most of those high end brands won't affect your average consumer and probably your average pod listener because that's just no. not within our kind of financial reach or possibly inclination. So I suppose the conversation we should be having is how important is the behaviour at the top end of the market mm. with very, very, you know, 
expensive luxury goods and services. How important is that in affecting that overall behavior across the whole consumer market? Because yes. a lot of people were saying, well, that's great, but it's totally not relevant to me. And if a hotel bans a plastic straw, well, so what? It, it's the actions of, mm. the, of the bigger chains and the more mass market chains that are important. So what's your sense of the relationship between those? And do those high-end brands affect what happens wider across the high street or wider across the leisure and retail industry, for example? Yeah, um, I think that there's certainly a sense of with the with the addition situation where they're creating this consortium and finding these consumers, that then does have an effect because that travels down. If you can find can, um, suppliers that are able to give you alternatives at cost, they're able to then give you alternatives to brands that don't necessarily have those huge budgets. Um, and I think that they get gain so much press. So there's also an element of... Um, these large brands with these very famous ambassadors just getting the message out there and that obviously has an effect in readership but so ultimately think I think that helps though because that's that celebrity culture thing do you think that's helping shift the dial shift the perception because I know that you know you get Leonardo DiCaprio saying this is a wonderful thing but do you think people actually um, take notice of that and change their behavior it's an interesting thing I think that. When you take someone, for instance, Leonardo DiCaprio, the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, the sheer scale of press and media attention that his foundations and his events get, it then becomes in our daily papers. So he's obviously responding to his own interests, but also the interests of his uh, fans and his, not necessarily suppliers in his case, but certainly the brands that he works with. And there's a bit of a give and take. I don't know necessarily if an enormous brand would go ethical, would go green, if it wasn't for the demands of its consumers and its fans and its ambassadors. But when one does and then the other follows, that's a huge impact. So I don't think it necessarily matters where that grain of thought comes from if they have the ability to put the message out there and create a huge message which in turn can educate people who aren't necessarily already um, interested and don't necessarily have access to that information, like many people um, who, who just may not have the, uh, be, in the, be in a situation where they can go out of their way to search for organic meats or organic vegetables. How do they find alternatives? And I think the more information that is being put out there, um, often by these large-scale partnerships and by these you know popular and trendy things then they get more information and they're able to make choices as well so i think that's really interesting because there's definitely a correlation between you know the, the celebrity culture and being influenced by what you see famous people doing and people's behavior so so i think you've made a fairly strong case for saying that you don't believe it's just lip service and greenwash you think it's a genuine commitment that can help change and obviously that's probably what's driving your relationship with that very big and well-known organisation, World Wildlife Fund. Because I think Tempest have paired up with them to do something quite exciting. Is that right? Yes, we're actually hosting our very first um, Tempest Earth Conservation Gala on the 31st of May. Um, we're, we're really excited about it. It's all in aid of WWF. Um, it's a gala that's, you know, we're, we're hoping to bring together um, high net worth individuals with big name brands who want to make a difference 
um, have a brilliant evening and educate the people in the room about what the WWF are doing to battle climate change and to battle wildlife extinction. It's something we're all very passionate about in the office. Um, and uh, again, it is a case of um, we, we have that genuine passion, but sometimes in the case of other brands, all of the brands that we are working with, um, we've got Velopa, uh, a brilliant, a really interesting um, uh, sponsor called Water Bear Network, who are actually taking, very much like Netflix, they're taking a streaming service in that way, but then with a call to action, and it's all charity-focused and all conservation-focused. And that ability to bring a, a call to action really made me think, how engagement in charity work and organisations is changing. And I think a lot of these big brands, because they're dealing with people who are demanding more, who are demanding responsibility and, and you know, advocacy from the brands that they use, that's perhaps a sign of, of how our engagement with organisations is changing as opposed to, you know, greenwashing and lip service. I think you have to have a responsibility now because if you are in a situation where you're impacting the world there's only so much world and yeah. we quite simply have to do something. And I think that message is finally starting to break through into the mainstream. So it's really interesting and that big brands can lead change across the whole sector. And Diana, that's something you'd know because you've worked with big brands for a long time, haven't you, in, in lots of lives as well as more recently in Thoughtful. And I think while you're focusing more on perhaps smaller creative industries now, you've definitely got experience working with those big brands. And I saw some interesting stats from Unilever recently saying that they felt sustainability was a buying concern for consumers and it was a growing area of their market. Has that been your experience working with those sorts of organisations? It, it has been. Um, I think it's changed quite a lot over over time, actually. In the time that I've been involved um, working in this area, which has been a considerably long time, considering um, how long we've just, uh, you know, been talking about it in business. But I've sort of worked at the um, overlap between sustainability and marketing for about um, 20 years and spent about a little bit over 15 years of that working um, all over the place. I was uh, worked in government for a while, um, charity, small business, big corporates, um, in consulting, working sort of for, um, you know, big multinational companies as well, talking to them about how to sort of integrate um, sustainability into their core business. And over that time, I've seen huge changes, thankfully. Um, I think when I started working in this area, um, which was at the beginning of my career, there was not much to talk about. Um, in fact, uh, if you couldn't tell from my accent, um, I'm from the States. And uh, back in the late 90s, early noughties, when you talked about this stuff in the US, um, people would ask you, like, so what are are you a socialist? Which is essentially, <laughs> Americans speak for, are you a terrible person? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Um, it's probably part of the reason why I then moved to the UK. <laughs> um, but yeah, things have gone from being, you know, this not being much of a topic of conversation to this starting to become a topic of conversation for, um, in particular, I think, well, obviously charities first, then big corporates. Um, and to be honest, I think the reason why I kind of 
experimented with so many different um, sectors was because I always had this feeling that um, it was almost like I could see a different future to what a lot of people seem to be seeing. There seemed to be a lot of doom and gloom around um, uh, sustainability. And I felt like I could just kind of, I, I didn't know if I was looking through a different lens, but it was like, I can see a world where if we just made some better decisions about the way that we make things and about the way that we buy things and about the way that we live our lives, um, I could see just this much brighter future where um, we could do more good than harm. And um, Essentially Thoughtful came out of that idea. Um, about three years ago, when I started seeing in particular social enterprise grow as a movement, that was really exciting because it was taking the conversation about sustainability and social impact away from just the, the kind of CSR reports and carbon footprints and circular economy and all this sort of like jargon that a lot of corporates were talking about, which is important, but which is not something that, you know, gets the regular sort of consumer, the regular person excited and, and you know, barely got me excited, <laughs> somebody who actually cares about this stuff. I know um, someone who gets very excited about carbon footprints. <laughs> <laughs> I think really interesting you said that, though, because actually all those things are vital, but they're kind of like a bedrock. They're the bit of the conversation around consumer, green consumer sustainability and action that that we don't want to talk about because it's not exciting, but we can't have the other conversation without having that bedrock. So it's really interesting you saw that as a jumping off point to talk about other things. Yeah, exactly. That's absolutely right. So I think, you know, the first step for a company is to have its house in order um, to do all of those things that nobody really wants to hear about, but that have to get done in order to credibly then go out and say, okay, question, how are we going to make this stuff actually relevant to our customers. And I think that's massively important because for any business, a business is not a business if it doesn't have customers. Um, and so that has to be kind of first and foremost in their minds. Have, so the question of how do we make sustainability relevant to our consumers isn't a question of how do we get our consumers to read our sustainability reports because they're not going to. <laughs> um, it's more about how do we take what we've done and the journey that we've been on so far and figure out then how we as a business can make the most relevant environmental or social impact given the kind of business that we are and therefore add more value to our customers by putting all of that into the products or services that we sell them. What are the things that we need to do because they need to be done in order to have credibility when we then go out there and say, okay, this is the thing that's relevant to our customers and um, we're going to create a better product, a better service for them because we're not just um, catering to their needs and wants, but also to um, helping them make a more positive impact on their world, on the world around them, um, and and bringing them into the conversation that way. Mm. And do you think those big brands, or even the luxury brands that Michelle's been describing, do you think they've bought the message because they're passionate about the environment, or have they bought the message because they can see that if they don't, no one will shop with them or visit their hotels? Or have they bought the message because actually they can see it makes good financial sense? Because there's a lot of discussion around behaving sustainably 
and saying that good sustainability equals good business because you save energy and you save waste and you save water and so it's, you save the associated costs. So what what's motivating them, do you think? I think it could be any of those things depending on which business you're talking to. Um, I think that some of the businesses that started moving on sustainability early on, um, I mean, I remember I would have conversations with uh, you know, CEOs and chairman of FTSE through 50 companies and ask, you know, why are you doing this sustainability stuff? And um, I would get really upset when their answer was because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> because I felt like, wait a minute, you're in charge of a business. That's that's not, you know, tell me about the financial reason why you're doing this. Um, get off my campaigning trail. <laughs> I own that bit. Um, no, but I, I think that at the end of the day, a business will not um, take this seriously and won't commit to it for the long run unless it does make sense for them financially. I mean, my um, I have a, a kind of core belief that you know profit and consumption are not um, inherently bad and evil things. I think that actually, if we point those forces in the right direction, they can be the biggest forces for positive change. Um, so I'm all for uh, companies engaging in sustainability and even more important, engaging their consumers in the right way, um, no matter what their motivations are. And do you think the consumers are leading it at the moment, that conversation, or are, the, are we being educated by the organisations, those bigger organisations, as it happens sort of almost by osmosis, you know, we'll talk about a green, ethical, sustainable consumer, but actually, do we only have that conversation because some of those organisations have been quietly leading the debate without us even realising? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, so I think that there are some businesses that moved early that have been talking about this for a long time, like the Unilevers and Marks and Spencers of the world. Um, but then... I think that actually where most of the really interesting stuff that's happening um, with sustainability and consumption is uh, in in the sort of social enterprise world. Um, and so to kind of go back to that really quickly, um, what got me really excited uh, about the growth of social enterprise is that all of a sudden here you had all of these incredible kind of startups and really exciting businesses that were, and my favorite ones are in business, you know, for for business reasons, because they want to grow a big company and a brand and, um, you know, they want to make money <laughs> and that is okay. That's a really good thing. That's a, a, a huge motivator. Um, and so when you, when I saw these companies that were creating these amazing products and brands and solutions and innovations that were in and of themselves beautifully designed, brilliant, you know, things that you would want to do, want to buy, um, but that also had uh, a sort of social or environmental mission at their core, something, you know, a challenge that they wanted to solve and that they wanted to use the vehicle of business in order to solve that problem from day one. That was massively inspiring. And so a big part of um, what we try to do through Thoughtful Works is to almost... Um, to put a different kind of pressure on companies, not just to say that, yes, consumers are becoming more sophisticated and more demanding um, uh, of what they're asking for from brands, um, that their expectations are higher, that uh, the companies that they deal with and the brands that they buy do um, make a more positive impact, but also that they're increasingly sort of cynical 
um, about those who say that they do, that they are often going to kind of scratch the surface and call you out um, if you're uh, if you're doing the greenwashing. Um, and so being able not to just point to consumers and say, hey, look, consumer trends um, and tastes are changing, but also, hey, look at these startups that are coming into your industry and starting to take your market share um, and starting to set new expectations of how business can and should be done. Um, and you can already see examples of how, for example, you know, Innocent came and shook up the drinks market, how Method came in and shook up the cleaning market, how Tesla has come in and shaken up the automotive market. Mm. And sure say there's call, more and more of those coming. We can't call Tesla a social enterprise, though, can we? I mean, we love him and we think he's fab and it's such a waste. He's put one in space. He could have just given it to me. But, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't call Tesla a social enterprise. I call it a disruptor. And I think that there's a real place in this market for disruptors. And actually, probably this of all markets is the one that's the most open to disruptive mm. technologies, approaches, ways of working, ways of delivering services. So perhaps we need to d drill down a bit as to what you mean by social enterprise, because there may be people listening to the pod who don't know what that term means. Yes. And I think that's a fair challenge. Um, so I think social enterprise is a very ill-defined term, first of all. Um, yeah, even legally, you know, you can be a for-profit company and be considered a social enterprise, or you can be something that's called a, it's a CIC. Yeah, um, community interest company. Yes, thank you. Um, which is somehow even more of a social enterprise, or you can be a charity and be considered a social enterprise. Um, and yes, I would probably agree with you that it's a bit of a stretch to call Tesla a social enterprise. The term, uh, not surprisingly, that I use uh, is a thoughtful business. Um, and so for me, a thoughtful business is any business that on the whole does more good than harm, that does have, that is a business, but that has this sort of social mission at its core. Um, and I do think that for me, actually, Tesla is one of my favorite examples of those kinds of business, because here, you know, Elon Musk set out with an ambition to create an automotive company that would help solve climate change. Like that's, a crazy ambitious <laughs> goal, right? Yeah. Um, so it's a business with a very strong social purpose. And I think the technical definition of social enterprise is to do with about how much money you can take out of the business and how you pay shareholders and, and how you pay directors. But, but, but actually what you're saying is this is social business, business for good, but those things don't preclude you making a profit. 100% because actually you need to pay people's wages and you need to expand and you need to be able to buy from a range of suppliers and actually increase the flow of capital so the business is more successful while maintaining the social good that it does. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. And uh, <laughs> uh, you, know, you, you are listening to Planet Port. You're not listening to In Business, but, you know, we can take everybody's clothes. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a favourite social enterprise, social business, if you've got a favourite green product or service that you use, so do get in touch. You can tweet us at planet underscore pod or you can email at hello at theplanetpod.com or visit the website um, theplanetpod.com. So get in touch. Tell us what you're thinking and feeling and suggest ideas for our good, bad and ugly slot because we always like to hear them. 
Today we're talking green consumerism. And although I said at the start shopping, we haven't done much shopping. So we maybe need to talk about, you know, real green brands on the high street. But I just wanted to go back and pick up on some things you were saying, Michelle, about the kind of luxury end of the market. And I'm a bit concerned that some of those, perhaps particularly around the travel lifestyle brands, might be in danger of greenwashing because we had... um, Uh, Paul from Ocean Diving on the pod recently and he was talking about you know fabulous diving experiences in Fiji and places but of course that has a massive carbon footprint doesn't it I mean just to get to the coral reefs presumably most of us would have to go on an airplane and we all know that if you're looking at green and business travel sustainable travel flying is the worst thing you can do so how do you square that circle really about those lifestyle brands Mm. at the luxury end who probably got a huge carbon footprint just to get their green consumers there? It's a brilliant question and it's a difficult one to answer. Um, There is part of me that thinks, you know, the world is a very small place. Um, It's very much in danger in a lot of ways. Um, And travel is actually one of those things that, I mean, we're looking here at the... at Tempest magazine we look at luxury lifestyle but across the board with travel people whether they are going on the holiday of their dreams um, to the most five-star luxury resort ever or going backpacking for a year across you know during a student gap year or or a break in careers very often you see travel travelers now Oh, sorry, just hit the table by accident. Um, but very often you see travellers now looking for ways to really engage with philanthropy, with charities, with conservation efforts themselves. And I mean, I spoke a little bit about, um, I, I believe the way we're engaging is changing now. And I think that, yes, there is a massive carbon footprint in jet travel, in plane travel, but the actual um initiatives that are being put through into these huge resorts where you are you're you know these are huge and really really well respected conservation efforts in the individual uh, countries that are creating incredible ways of getting people to really engage with physically engage with actually conserving these natural environments themselves and so, that is a huge benefit i think so your argument i guess would be that you're by going you could change people's behavior and you and know, that you has just, an impact and you could justify that one-off for that person because actually they could do good while they were there i mean i think so and i think that yes there is a danger of greenwashing and yes there is a danger of you know um of kind of it being a, a mouthpiece very often like not perhaps not very often but in Mm. some cases but just as Diane was saying I don't know if that really matters I think if the good is being done and it's changing the way that we as consumers question and educate ourselves and engage then that's a really huge benefit in the long term because then we teach our friends and our colleagues and our children as well and other businesses and by asking those questions of businesses I think that's a really great thing. Yeah, I think you're right. How educated do you think we are as green consumers? I mean, it's a term we bandy around. Is there such thing as a green consumer? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I, I, well, let me rephrase. I think there are a tiny, and actually uh, there have been many, many um, research studies done 
over the last probably five to 10 years um, that have shown that there's a tiny percentage of consumers that will make purchasing decisions based on um, which is the most sustainable, ethical, responsible product or service on the market. Um, there are, it's, it's below kind of 10%. The vast majority of people, and I would con include myself in that, um, buy things for lots of reasons because, um, you know, because it says something about who you are, because it helps you solve a problem in your life, because it's beautiful or it's well-designed or it fixes a problem for me. Um, those are the reasons that people buy things. And I think if in addition to meeting that need or that desire, you can do that in a way that's adding extra value um, by doing by helping you to do good for for your world, for the world around you, then that's the kind of um, holy grail, I think, for brands. Um, you have to be able to you have there has to be and this is kind of the marketer in me definitely speaking you have to be able to answer the question for the customer what's in it for me mm. first and foremost and just a kind of vague fluffy feeling of maybe having some done done something good for uh you know a, somebody across the globe um or for you know a forest that you'll never see or you know for an animal <laughs> that you'll that you'll never um see it's it's just not enough for most people um and so i think what brands need to do really is to, especially I would say the big brands and corporates, they need to up their game. Mm. Um, they need to really look at, you know, what is it that our customer expects from us as a brand? What are our strengths as a company? And therefore, um, you know, beyond just the, uh, the kind of housekeeping stuff, like, you know, do we minimize the amount of paper we use in the office and do we recycle and all, you know, all those kinds of things that everybody should be doing anyway. Um, when it comes down to making sustainability relevant for your customers, the question is how do we add even more value to um, what they're buying from us by being able to add in, you know, that extra bit that aligns with their values as well. So I suppose as consumers, we have a duty to step up here, don't we, and become better educated and demand more of those suppliers, whether they're, you know, Unilever providing household cleaning products or whether it's a, you know, a hotel chain. It's our responsibility to actually ask the questions and become more educated as consumers and, and push back. And I guess if we don't like the answers, take action, boycott the brand. I mean, would you encourage people to get better educated about what they're buying? I would encourage people to think much more, um, even to think a little bit more about the buying decisions that they're making. So, um, you know, first of all, do I need to buy this or not? Um, is there a better alternative? Where was this made? Who made it? Where did it come from? Um, how is it made? Uh, and I think too often we don't even bother to think about those questions. As soon as you even um, have that question as a little sort of grain in your mind, then you start to see the the brands that are doing that better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the pressure is really going to come from um, for brands, partly from kind of trends in, in consumer um, demands and uh, trend, different ways that consumers are kind of waking up to these issues more. But I think um, equally, if not more so, the pressure will come from competition. Um, you know, brands who actually credibly 
uh, are able to offer products and services that have a kind of authentic um, social purpose and that they're actually able to deliver that um, as consistently as they possibly can through their processes and their products and their people. Um, I do believe that if they have, um, you know, if they if they're able to answer that question for the customer, what's in it for me, plus the additional sort of um, social purpose element of it, then consumers will move toward those brands. And that aspect of competition is probably what's going to drive um, the bigger brands to change. And hopefully that will drive down the price, because the big problem is this is a debate that those who can afford to have the debate have the debate. And That's very often the sustainable, green, consumer, ethical um, product or service is, is more expensive. And that's something that we have to push companies to ensure that, you know, we get good, ethical, sustainable behaviours across the whole marketplace. So it's not just the upper end of the market, whatever it is you're buying. Mm. You mentioned community fridges, and that is a perfect example of that. We need something like that in the high street for clothing you know there's yeah. always those problems as well absolutely and this idea that we can make more of this accessible to everybody regardless of their their income or their personal circumstances fascinating discussion thank you both so much we always ask our guests for a call to action um, and we're running short of time so a relatively speedy one michelle what would you have people do as a result of listening to the pod today I think um, personally, if you are looking into particularly travel, um, holding brands accountable where you can and looking for those adventures and those experiences, um, many are available that are, have fantastic um, links with really, really respected conservation charities and they're always wonderful fun, brilliantly educating and they're out of this world experiences so if you are able to that would be my call to action when traveling yeah so your holiday of the lifetime could do good as well as being amazing and how about you diana i think my one thing would be to ask people to just take a moment um to think about the thing that they're buying um i'm not an advocate necessarily of of people you know of asking people to buy less and go and live in a cave. (laughs) Um, But thinking about, you know, do I need to buy this new gadget or, you know, does the one that I have now work perfectly and I can use that for longer? Um, But also, you know, when you are going to buy something, just taking a moment to think about, is there a better choice that I can be making? Because I think um, our wallets speak very loudly. Yeah. So be thoughtful in your purchasing, I think, is the the call there. And I guess mine would be, apart from listening to the pod again, um, (laughs) mine would be perhaps along those lines, you know, do you need to buy it? And if you are buying it, can you do something good with whatever it is it's replacing? So it's a recycle or a reuse or a repurpose or a gift to someone who might not have it. Um, you've been listening to Planet Pod. My huge thanks to my guests, Michelle and Diana, and to Jim, of course, our very patient producer. Huge thank you to Breakthrough for supporting us and providing us with space, and to Akil Management and the Planet Mark, who make the pod possible. Before we go, I have to do a first ever, a pod erratum slip. You can tell I work in publishing. I got it wrong. WWF now stands for World Wide Fund for Nature. I bet you didn't know that because I certainly didn't.
keep listening because coming up on the pod, we have episodes around green finance, very topical after today's conversation, as well as uh, changing behaviours and how art and installations and design can really affect what we think about the climate and our behaviours around sustainability. And we've got some fabulous guests lined up for the next few issues of the pod. Don't forget, you can subscribe via our website or you can download the pod from iTunes or your other favourite podcast provider. So join us again soon on The Planet Pod.